Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Munnies. He's been tracking the huge influx of coronavirus relief funds flowing into the state under the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Oklahoma Watch fought to get applications for the $1.87 billion the state has to spend and recently published an online database where people can search for those projects. Paul, tell us a little more about that new database. Yeah, so the new database allows users to kind of search by the the requester as well as browse by the different categories of spending. And you can also look for the the 50 largest requests uh, out of this money. Um, And there's also, you can click through the details of each application provided by the the entity that asked for it. And where did all that data come from? Well, this was kind of a long process for us. We first started asking for these applications back in February of this year. Uh, The state denied our request several times under Open Records Act requests. Um, We eventually teamed up with the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and uh, filed a lawsuit to uh, try and release some of those records. And then, uh, strangely enough, in in late May at the end of session, uh, Governor Stitt was having a press conference, and I just asked him, you know, why they're not releasing these applications. And he said, well, we'll take a look at that, and eventually released them a couple days later. Uh, how has the state changed the way it's uh, approving those projects? Yeah, so lawmakers um, started kind of looking through the process about a year ago and took some working groups at the Capitol to different areas of, of the projects they want to look at. And um, then they kind of went through a legislative process to do that and sent the projects on to the governor. But that was getting pretty um, bogged down in some of the details. And so they decided to revamp the whole process and kind of parallel it with the same way they do the state budget during the regular session and kind of have committees look at this um, and then send it up to a larger vote on the floor of each chamber and then send the project on to the governor for the approval of the money itself. All right. Has the the state talked about any priorities uh, in that approval process? Yeah, so they've got several categories that they want to take a look at, and the largest ones are probably broadband, uh, water infrastructure, healthcare workforce needs, um, behavioral health coming out of the pandemic, uh, state IT uh, modernization, and then help for nonprofits um, and workforce development, and then economic development are their focus areas. Have they approved anything to date? They have, yeah. In the regular session that ended in in May, they spent about $140 million, including uh, about $50 million to help nursing programs in higher education, as well as about $75 million in water infrastructure projects and some behavioral mental health for, for children as well. And then they had a, a special session um, in June where they approved about $70 million of projects, including some, some broadband uh, mapping projects and water projects and some more um, nursing workforce at uh, Career Techs. When will the legislature meet again on this? So they've kind of got an open-ended special session uh, to look at some of these ARPA projects, and um, they next expect to meet probably late August or early September to kind of approve some more more projects under this funding. Does the state already have all of the money, the whole $1.87 billion? It does now. It got the first uh, $725 million last year um, in 2021. And then just recently, last month, the state got its other half, which was about, uh, not a half, but about $935 million, 
dollars um, just last month. Um, the state got it in two chunks like that because the federal government wanted to prioritize the money to states that had uh, higher unemployment rates. And so Oklahoma was uh, hit hard by the pandemic and unemployment, but not as bad as some other states. And so we got our money in two chunks like that. Well, and who else has uh, federal coronavirus relief money they can spend? Yes, and it's not just the state that has this money. Um, some money went directly to counties. Uh, in Oklahoma specifically, there's about sorry, $768 million that's going to counties. Uh, larger cities got some, some direct money too, including Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and that's about $315 million. And then there's other kind of smaller government units and travel units that got uh, money too from this federal program. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. If you'd like to check out that database, uh, find whatever projects are of interest to you or just see what the 50 biggest requests were, you can find that on our website at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with democracy reporter Keaton Ross, who recently updated Oklahoma Watch's financial disclosure database. He's here to talk about the purpose of financial disclosure forms and how state lawmakers handled potential conflicts of interest in the 2022 legislative session. Keaton, what financial information are lawmakers required to share? Yeah, so annually they're required to share any income over $20,000 outside of their lawmaker salary uh, any investments over $20,000, as well as any business stake of 5% or more or $50,000, uh, whichever hits first. Now, are those forms readily accessible to the public? Can anybody look that stuff up? So the public can request that from the Oklahoma Ethics Commission. They aren't published on any any website or government website. Uh, I believe that was due to some concerns that uh, there were addresses and phone numbers on the forums, and there were possibly some some privacy concerns there. But uh, we've we've got the the latest forms, and they're they're published on our our database. Uh, we did that earlier this year, and then we've recently got the forms that were due uh, on May fifteenth of this year. What qualifies as a conflict of interest for a legislator? Yeah, so really, it's anything that can be perceived as benefiting you know, your personal finances or business interest, business interests uh, for yourself as well as your spouse. So it could be running a bill to give yourself a tax break or to let a family member get, get in on, uh, you know, some sort of business deal and benefit from that. Really anything that's self-serving and that's, that, that can be pretty broad. Uh, there seemed to be a, a heightened awareness of potential conflicts in this year's session. Why was that? Yeah, that, that came after uh, Representative Terry O'Donnell uh, was indicted uh, for running a bill in 2019 that ultimately let his wife take over running a tag agency, uh, grand jury, Oklahoma County Grand Jury indicted him last December. Uh, he, he remained in the legislature, but he resigned from his uh, leadership position uh, as a speaker pro tempore. Um, so that that kind of prompted a heightened awareness and you know more emphasis on not not voting on anything that could be perceived as a conflict of interest. Well, and that's one way legislators deal with those conflicts, right? Is they recuse themselves from votes that 
that might create that situation. Do we know how often they recuse themselves? Yeah. So going going through some legislative records, kind of trying to see the scope of of how regular it is. Uh, I found 104 instances of lawmakers just on the House floor or the Senate floor uh, recusing themselves from a vote, taking what's called it's called constitutional privileges when you won't vote because it could be perceived as self-serving or um, a conflict of interest. So uh, fairly regularly, um, 104 times last year. Now, is there a formal process for them to determine if a recusal is necessary or do they just kind of do it on their own? Yeah, so it's there's there's no uh, written formal process. Um, it's, it's more just uh, an awareness of what bills are coming up uh, discussion with the, you know, the floor leaders, the House and Senate leadership uh, about, you know, this is coming up. This is what you've disclosed. This is what you've in, you're involved in. Uh, you probably shouldn't vote on vote on this bill, but it can get get kind of into a into a gray area um, as far as you know how far you should go, how to toe the line. Uh, but I think certainly the the Terry O'Donnell case has has caused it, you know more people to be cautious about it. Now, when newly elected officials uh, come on the scene, when will they be required to submit their financial disclosure forms? Yeah, so it's it's an election year, obviously. Um, come November, there will be some some new representatives and elected officials, and they, they won't be required to submit their forms until May of 2023 um, after they've taken office. So there, there will be a little bit of a a gap between when when they're they're in their position and when we have access to those forms. Oh, thanks, Keaton. Now that database uh, can show the public a lot of things about legislators, right? Their financial interests, businesses they're involved in, that sort of thing. If somebody wants to go take a look at that, how are they going to find that database? Yeah, so it's it it should be on our website at OklahomaWatch.org and. You'll be able to scroll through and see. Uh, you can search for your representative. It'll come up. It'll show their business interests as well as um, we've. In addition, that that I did was adding the bills they recused themselves from in the last session. So you'll be able to see those bills. Click on them. Um, see what they did recuse themselves of, and then you know, obviously, if, and if any readers notice anything, have a have a tip uh, regarding a conflict of interest. Uh, can certainly reach out to me at kross at oklamawatch.org. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can find that database and all of Keaton Ross's investigative work on democracy in Oklahoma at oklahomawatch.org. For the past month, race and equity reporter Ari Fife has been working on a story about Senate Bill 615, a recently passed law that affects the way many students in Oklahoma will use the bathroom this coming school year. She's here today to talk about the basics of the law and how administrators, teachers, and students are responding. Ari, what is the law and what does it do? Yeah, so this is a law that um, requires students at public and charter pre-K through 12 schools um, to use the bathroom that aligns with their biological sex. And for those who maybe need a refresher, um, biological sex has to do with a person's um, genitals and other factors that are determined at birth, like their horm hormones and chromosomes. Um, gender 
is a more social construct and that has to do with more um, of whether a person feels male or female or a mix of both or neither. Um, and the reason why these are kind of complicated issues is because sometimes a student's sex doesn't line up with their gender. They may have male, male genitals, but they don't feel male, or they may have female genitals, but they don't feel female. Um, and this law will impact a lot of students that feel this way. Um, and so we're waiting on um, guidance from the Department of Education to kind of um, give this law a little more structure and help schools figure out exactly how to implement it. What do legislators say their motivations were for creating this this law? Yeah, so it was originally authored by Rep uh, Representative Danny Williams, and it has 45 sponsors across the House and Senate, um, all Republican. And um, sponsor, I spoke with one of the sponsors of the bill, uh, Representative Kevin West, and he cited uh, Stillwater Public Schools bathroom policy as the motivation for the bill. Um, in 2015, Stillwater instituted uh, a policy that allowed students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender. Um, and I spoke with a spokesperson from the, from the uh, district who said that they haven't received any reports of uh, misconduct from students as a result of this policy, but it still received a lot of criticism from Attorney General John O'Connor and Secretary of Education Ryan Walters. Now, does the law create any penalties for students uh, or schools that don't comply? Yeah, so it leaves um, individual school districts and charter schools to create penalties for students who break the law, um, but it makes the penalties for schools who are found to be non-compliant clear. Um, if a school is found to be non-compliant by the State Department, Department of Education, they risk losing 5% of their state funding for the next fiscal year. And parents also have a cause of action to sue the school for non-compliance separately. Now, you mentioned the State Department of Education uh, is going to provide some guidelines for school districts. What's likely to be included? Yeah, um, so like I said, it will probably have more details on what exactly schools can do to enforce the law. When I spoke with Representative West, he said it will probably provide a range of options um, from less to more strict. Um, but it will also, he said, probably give a process for um, the, the Department of Education to find a school to be non-compliant. The law doesn't currently give any criteria for what the Department of Education would be looking for to make, con make that conclusion. So uh, while schools are waiting for that additional information from the Department of Education, what can administrators do? What are they thinking about doing to implement the law? Yeah, so I spoke with three school districts. Um, superintendents from Newcastle and Winniewood Public Schools, and a spokesperson from Stillwater. And they all said they're planning on using pre-existing men and women's bathrooms and also offering single occupancy bathrooms for students who feel uncomfortable using either. Um, the Winniewood superintendent said they're also remodeling the elementary school to build a single occupancy bathroom. Have you heard from any teachers who might have to help uh, enforce that law? 
So I spoke with Aaron Baker, who's a social studies teacher at Putnam City North High School, and he's also that school's Gender and Sexuality Alliance faculty advisor. Um, he said he's taught at the school for three years, and he's always seen his trans students use single occupancy bathrooms. Um, he said he thinks using the bathroom should be a private experience um, for students. And he also said he doesn't expect the district to ask him to stand in the hallway and monitor who goes in the bathroom so strictly. Um, but if they do ask him to, he said he won't comply. What do mental health professionals say about the effect this this bill might have on students? Have you heard uh, from them or have you heard from any students themselves? Yeah, so I spoke with Cynthia Mooney and Rosa Summers, who work with the Oklahoma Mental Health Association. They said that schools are already plagued with bullying, and this will worsen um, that situation for um, a lot of students who are already vulnerable. And it could also lead to increased suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. I also spoke with Logan Foster, who's a senior at Dimensions Academy, an alternative school in Norman. Um, he's transmasculine, which means he identifies more with masculine traits. And he said he's not particularly worried about the school's, the impact of the bill on his school because it's um, quite small and the staff is fairly affirming. But he's worried about um, the impact this might have on other trans students who are still in the early stages of coming out and um, might not go to such inclusive schools. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. Uh, Ari Fife is one of our Report for America Corps members. You can find all her investigative work on race and equity at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.